The epistle reading is from James, the fifth chapter. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfastness, who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the ninth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. John, John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. I'm going to continue where I left off a little bit last week. We looked at James chapters 3 and 4, and I'm continuing here with the first part of James chapter 1. Now, if I asked you to name two or three of the richest people in the world, how long would it take you to come up with a few names? Not too long, I don't think. But what if I were to ask you, name the poorest people in the world? That might be a little bit of a head-scratcher. The world is obsessed with riches. And James gives us some sharp words about that. Again, chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl 
for the miseries that are coming upon you. In this message, I want to define what James means by the rich, and then we're going to look at the other thing that James is really concerned about, and that's righteousness. So my sermon is tonight about riches or righteousness, which is our goal. Then we'll take a look at one great example at the end. Job mentions him at the end of the fifth chapter, and that's the great example of Job. So who are the rich? Well, James tells us in chapter 5 when he speaks of these rich who he says will weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, uh, he goes on to explain that, that these are the ones who are cheating others, who are serving them, not paying their wages. Uh, these are those who are living in self-indulgence, basically living uh, and using up all their riches for themselves. In chapter 1, he also speaks about these rich when he says they are the ones who oppress you and drag you into court by hook or by crook, whatever it takes, legal or illegal, they're working always to increase their wealth. And then in chapter 4, James also speaks of this when he says, you know, people go about and they trade with one another and they go out to make a profit. James doesn't say that's a bad thing at all. However, it is a bad thing when it is not in accord with the will of God. When people do so and boast and think of their wealth as something that's only their accomplishment. So this is the biblical definition that the Bible gives in other places as well of those who are rich and what they really mean are those who, whose main goal of life is to acquire riches. Now, it really has nothing to do with the amount that a person has. What, what it really amounts to is, is how much do you think about these things and how important are they to you in your life compared to other things. I remember a professor who was on an archaeological dig in Egypt and this was way out in the country. It was near a little village. And every night, the entertainment that the archaeologist has was to go to the village where this man would always ride his donkey up and down the main road to kind of show off his wealth. You know, in his context, he probably was one of these rich people that James is speaking about. But compared to a lot of other people in the world, he really wasn't that rich at all. It's not determined by the amount, but by the attitude. Paul explains it this way in his letter to Timothy. He says that it is the love of money, not money itself in any amount, but the love of it. If you don't have much, but you still love it, you're rich. If you have a lot and you love it, you're in this category as well. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which many have been led astray who have wandered from the faith, piercing them through, he says, and hurting themselves tremendously. The rich are people whose main goal in life is riches. Uh, so the rich would be the godless capitalists as well as the godless Marxists. All of these people, and we hear about them every day on the news uh, both sides of the news, liberal, conservative, fixated on riches and material things. 
We are immersed in a culture that does this, and so we should think about this and the way it will tend to pull us in that direction and to draw us away from the Lord ourselves. Jesus said that we should lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven. And he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So what might be some signs that this temptation is working on us? I thought of a few diagnostic questions. They're not perfect, but I think you'll see where they're taking us. If, if you just happen to receive a gift of $500 tonight, what's the first thing you would do? Spend? Save? Give thanks to God. If you received a gift of $500, would you share it with others? Tithe on that gift? Or simply keep it all for yourself? And which would make you happier right now? A gift of $500 or the opportunity to worship with other Christians for an hour? They're not perfect, but they lead to these ultimate issues that we all struggle with. Do we love God or do we love riches? Well, to help us over that temptation, let's go on now to something else that James speaks so much about in his letter, and that is righteousness. I read this verse last Sunday. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So let's define righteousness tonight, and I want to do it by providing you with a number of images of righteous people in the Bible and their righteousness and then we'll get a definition, a twofold, a very clear twofold definition of righteousness. So, what does righteousness look like? It looks like this. On the one hand, it looks like Abraham, when God promised him a son and he didn't believe God, and yet God, in his love and grace and mercy, gave him a son anyway. That's a picture of righteousness in the form of forgiveness and grace. But we also see a beautiful image of Abraham's righteousness when Abraham and Isaac are walking down Mount Moriah, having passed one of the most amazing tests of faith that anyone could imagine. God had tested Abraham to see whether he loved him more than that precious son Isaac and whether or not he would offer him up as a sacrifice, believing that somehow God would still provide him with that son. There we see Abraham's obedience as righteousness. The righteousness of God is seen, for example, in the people of Israel. In our Old Testament lesson for this particular weekend, we hear of of one of the times when Israel was complaining against God for that 40 years of their wandering in the wilderness. And we see the patience of God with those people. That was, again, righteousness in the form of forgiveness. But we see also the righteousness of Israel when they bravely follow Joshua into the promised land and face all the the enemies that they would face there. Again, righteousness as the obedience of faith. David shows us the example of righteousness when he stood before that giant Goliath 
and took him down with nothing more than a sling and a stone, but above all, with God's help as he prayed to the Lord for help. We also see David's righteousness in the form of forgiveness when he cried out to to the Lord after his sins of adultery and murder. Isaiah said to the remnant of Israel, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. There's righteousness as forgiveness. But it's also in that remnant of Israel who faithfully hung on to the promise that they would have a virgin who would give birth to a son who would be the Messiah. Righteousness is seen in the image of Peter the fisherman doubting and sinking down into the waves and Jesus reaching out to save him. Again, righteousness as forgiveness. But then we see the righteousness of Peter as he stands before the council They were telling him to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And now the apostle Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. Paul shows us these two ways of righteousness when he cries out in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And yet we also see Paul's righteousness when he he realizes there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We see righteousness in your lives. When you lay your head down on your pillow at night and you say this little prayer, Dear God, forgive me for speaking ill of someone today. And God does forgive you. And we see your righteousness in the morning when you're tempted to sleep in. But you realize, no, it's my duty. i got to get up and take care of myself and my family and others. And you do so. Righteousness comes in the form of forgiveness and righteousness comes in the form of obedience. Our natural desires and the world and the devil are constantly urging us to choose riches over righteousness, but it is the good shepherd who leads us always, as Psalm 23 tells us, in the paths of righteousness. Well, let's look at the person of Job that James mentions at the end of of that fifth chapter and at the end of his book. What, What can Job teach us about riches and righteousness? Because here's a man who clearly had both. Job's a very rich man, and yet Satan didn't believe in his faith. He didn't think he was sincere. He told God, take it all away, and then let's see what happens. Let's see him curse you then. And so the Lord allowed Satan to afflict Job. He took away his riches. He took away his family. He took away his health, and Job plunged from being the richest person in the world to being the poorest person in the world. Remember when I said, name the richest, name the poorest. Job would have fit in both of those categories. And you would think that a righteous man would endure all of that faithfully, but Job was still a sinner, and that comes out in his book. And his faithfulness, it was not perfect. And so he began to question this situation he was in, And then God came to Job again and told him, you're not getting all the answers that you want. And here was the critical point. This is where Satan wanted Job to throw in the towel and curse God and die. But Job refused. Job showed the true righteousness of God when he repented 
And when God forgave him, and not only forgave him, but restored him with all of those riches that he had lost before. We see in him both kinds of righteousness. The righteousness of forgiveness, the righteousness of obedience. Paul said, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the way James and Jesus want us to view our life, journeying along the way that way, avoiding this temptation to become obsessed with salaries and bank accounts and sales and this and that that provide us the comforts of the world, remembering instead, above all, the righteousness of God in Christ, whose life, whose death on the cross, granted us forgiveness for faith and then faith for obedience. When avarice, when envy try to draw us away, pull us away, that's when we need the righteousness of forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. I've strayed. I've wandered. I've veered in the wrong direction. Forgive me and strengthen me in my faith. But when we are setting our goals and planning out our life, then the riches of Christ And the righteousness of of obedience come to bear. It protects us and insulates us so that we don't spend our life griping because we have too little or always grasping for more and more. But rather, like James says, we sit back and we enjoy the fruit of righteousness which is sown in peace. Amen. Please rise.